I'm Gaetano Krupi, co-founder and CEO of Cabin Technologies. We are tech-enabled long-distance mobility solution. Welcome to Founders First, a podcast by 1517 Fund. This is a deep dive conversation into how exactly founders of venture-backed startups get started. We look at what led them to their ideas, how they did customer discovery, built their first products, and landed their first customers. And you are along for the ride. Welcome to Founders First. In the last year or so, I think the easiest way to understand Cabin from a industry perspective is with all that's happening in mobility and specifically micro-mobility, Cabin is taking the opposite side of that bet, which means that we've seen that short distances and small vehicles bouncing around town. Scooters. Scooters is a thing. Right. Um, our view, if you really break down the economics and user behavior, is that long distance is going to be in large vehicles. Um, so inner city travel... Um, even if you look at an electric autonomous car and its cost structure, is still not uh, priced for the masses. And so our view is as you build bigger and bigger vehicles, you can really transform how often people get out of town uh, and move between cities. So what's a realistic example of what you're doing applied in the real world? Sure. So I think right now, I mean, obviously this is all the super long-term sci-fi vision stuff that I think a lot of people... Uh, in San Francisco are really into and, and really gets me up in the morning in terms of engineering. But at the same time, for us, one of our main tactical strategies as a business was, okay, that's great 10 years from now, yep. right? What about today? What problem are you solving today? Um, and the way I like to think about our business is kind of, um, if you view electric autonomous as this amazing technology frontier that really changes the cost structure of transportation, it's, it's, if, you, if you take a look back at what's happened with content and entertainment, that's kind of like streaming, right? There is this technical in the future view that videos are gonna be able to be transmitted online, right? Um, but Netflix started 10 years before that. And so- what And it originally started with sending DVDs to people. Exactly. And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, our view of Cabin is right now we're in this DVDs in the mail business, right? Which is really about looking at how terrible the airport experience is or driving seven hours and giving a people a very specific value proposition driven reason to take our service versus flying. Um, so I would say that we're laying the groundwork to capitalize on this change in mobility costs. But today, what we're really capitalizing on is number one, flying is terrible. Number two, less people are getting their driver's license and, and less people are having cars, right? But they still want to move uh, between cities. And, uh, and the bus as a form factor is, uh, is a really elegant piece of infrastructure that people don't think about just because they think about Greyhound, right? And that's a brand issue. It's not a uh, hardware issue, right? And so um, we saw a huge opportunity uh, to launch something today that really could transform how people view inner city transportation. And instead of being theoretical, uh, Tom and my, my co-founder, we launched a little pilot. We got massive amounts of traction, sold a bunch of tickets. That's when we started Cabin. And in terms of occupancy and the unit economics and all that stuff, it just is a thing, right? So if someone's not familiar with Cabin, they, yeah. be, they should be able to put it together thus far. It has something to do with the bus. Yes, it does. Uh, and it has something to do with inner city travel. It does. So, so well. what does your current 
or the product that you started with, what does it generally look like for people? Absolutely. So um, the product itself, just nuts and bolts, is a 45-foot motor coach. Um, that is the biggest vehicle you can put on the road, right? And uh, there's a driver. It's a diesel engine, just very traditional. Um, but inside of it, uh, instead of seats, are private sleeping cabins. Um, and the service runs from San Francisco to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to San Francisco overnight. So um, instead of selling uh, a distance, we actually just sell a check-in and check-out time. So um, your experience as a user is you're in downtown San Francisco, you take an Uber or public transportation, or you walk to our pickup point, which is in the Embarcadero, like right in the middle of the city. You check in at 10.30, we get you as quickly as possible to, in your PJs and into your private cabin. You go to sleep, and we wake you up in Santa Monica. That's, that's the user experience. It sounds like magic. It is. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes when Tom and I first started pitching Cabin was I was in a, I was in a meeting with him, and someone asked Tom, I was like, okay, so how'd you come up with this idea? And I was like, Gaetano and I were very interested in time travel. So we started investigating <laughs> bending space-time and realized that that was a very hard technical challenge. So then we were like, no time machine, teleportation. And then when we really started looking at disintegrating particles, transforming information, reassembling people, we were like, wow, that's going to take a lot of funding. So instead, we put beds on a bus. And he was joking, obviously, <laughs> right? But at the end of the day... I don't know if it is obvious, though. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, we, what we are playing with is, um, is friction, right? At the end of the day, that's always what, what, where, you're, where you're playing with, I think, when you want to create a new business model, especially in consumer, is, okay, this is how it's done today. Let's break that down, have a per first principles analysis of every single step, and uh, reassemble it kind of in a, maybe a way that you haven't seen it before, right, right? right? I mean, a flight from LA to SF takes maybe like 58 minutes of in-flight time. Yes but it ends up actually really taking like four hours. The right? minimum time you can do it in is, uh, the average time you can do it in is four hours. So um, all of the air, air, airport data is actually public. So you actually know what the average TSA line is, what the average boarding time is, what the average taxiing, what the average getting to cruising altitude is. So if you had a flight that had zero minutes in cruising altitude, it's about four hours door to door from a city center to a city center, right? And so, um, so that's kind of just the time piece of it, right? Where a 45 minute flight is actually four hours. Um, but then you also have, <clears throat> and I'm glad you asked this question because air really is our target right now, right? It's kind of like, that is what it is. It's not, people are like, are you like Greyhound? It's like, no, there is no Venn diagram of our customers that overlaps with, uh, the Greyhound market, right? Our view is that today we're going after air and tomorrow we're going after you driving your own car. Well, it seems like to me, if somebody takes Greyhound, right. They take it because their time, they don't perceive their time as being very valuable and they'd rather spend $8 on a Greyhound from you know yeah. LA to SF and spend many, many hours right in the middle of a day. If you take an airline ticket, on the other hand, you view your time as being relatively valuable, but then you kind see of. that it's kind of valuable, but right. you see it still takes five hours. It does, yeah. So it's... Yeah, there's no overlap between the consumers here. No, I mean, I think, I think one of the, and one of the reasons why people have, like, the brand associations they have with, um, 
with buses is because I noticed the first time I talked to Tom, yeah. he refused to use the word bus. We don't. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, like, we call it the B word. The B word. Yeah. We don't use the <laughs> B word. Um, uh, because there's just a lot of uh, gunk around that in terms of what you think of when you think of a bus. But uh, that's the reason for that is that in terms of infrastructure, that piece, uh, especially in the United States, um, is the cheapest form of transportation, right? So um, it is very rational that it's the service is the way it is because what they're doing is actually trying to get the ticket price as low as possible, right? So that's kind of, that's kind of what that is. But when we were doing our first principles analysis of inner city travel, uh, and getting to that joke I was saying about putting beds in a bus, I think the way that we broke this down was first cost, right? And not cost per ticket, but just operating costs. Like, and the way we think about it is cubic foot mile. Like how much does it take for you to transport a cubic foot from point A to point B? Discrete point to discrete point. And just the larger the vehicle, the better, right? Well, it, it, again, to the analogy to the airlines, the airlines use something like seat uh, they, 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 like use that, a, right? they use a seat. The reason why we actually went with volume instead of just uh, a seat is that one of the most interesting things for us is uh, making environments that are much bigger, right? So right, for, a cat, for, for instance, one of the things that we leverage when we, go, when we go after airlines in terms of just a pure structural advantage is that we can just, for the same ticket, we can make your space way bigger. Right, so you can really go for comfort because it's just bigger, right? And so that's kind of why we really want to analyze it by uh, cubic foot mile because our view is that in an electric autonomous world, cars are real estate, right? And when you start thinking about cars as real estate, in real estate, the only thing that matters is space, right? And so if you're not driving it, you're not parking it, you're not servicing it, why is it going to be small, right? It's going to be small for costs, but electric vehicles, you know, the cost per mile is very de minimis. Our view is that if you're the longer you stay in transport, the bigger the space you're going to want want because you have to be productive. So, the fir and which goes into the so the first point is around cost per mile. Like you just get to a really great cost per mile that actually works for 400, 500 mile distances. The second piece again is about your time, right? And so, when it comes to what we're trying to solve for, which is getting from one city to the next, or to the beach, or to the mountain, or to Disneyland, just a uh, uh, higher frequency of inner city travel, right? The main, uh, first is cost, right? You need to make it inexpensive for someone to just bounce around from city to city. So they're not paying like $300 each time or else they're not gonna do that, right? But the second piece is, even if you're moving, let's say 500 miles away, if it just burns your day to get there, you're just not gonna go as often, right? No one is, no one is going to take their four-year-old to Disneyland for the day. Oh, I mean, we were discussing before we sat down here. I, I live in Pittsburgh. It's like 500 miles from New York City, D.C. On a map, it looks great. It's like, oh, you know, you're not that far away from those. You can hop over there. It takes a whole day of either driving or flying because, again, hour-long flight, yep. but four or five hours when you uh, factor in going to the airport, going through the TSA, waiting, hoping you don't get delayed because the way that airlines delay flights is they delay regional flights first and then getting there and then trying to get to your final destination, which often isn't like right by the airport. A hundred percent. And not only that, but you, there's no red eyes for the, yeah, that for, one for hour. That, so yeah, right. they schedule them in the morning or in the afternoon. Or I can't the leave evening. at midnight and land. At, yeah. Exactly. So that means that you're burning your morning, your after, you're, you're burning your productive time, right? Um, and that's, that's exactly the, 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 the point. So um, our view is that the second piece, so first is cost. The second is you really have to think about opportunity cost, 
when you're talking about longer distance travel. And so when we started Cabin, we actually didn't know if we were gonna do sleep. So I think we did have the insight of like, oh my goodness, if you make rooms that move from place to place, you can get the cost for the ticket uh, very low in a large format, but at the same time, you can actually build an office or you can build a gym or you can build a hotel room. You can build something that someone's gonna use anyway. And if they are being very productive during that time, there is no travel time in a certain way, right? Especially because ground transportation is point to point, right? One of the biggest issues with air, especially in a short-term flight, is that my experience is get into an Uber or a taxi, right? Then get out of it, then check in, then get into TSA, then get past the gate, then wait for my boarding group, then what is, then I board, and then I can't use the internet until I get to, there are so many steps that I don't have any uninterrupted time. And contact switching is very expensive, right? And so um, one positive about ground is I can get you into the room that you're moving in immediately, curbside, and then I don't disturb you, right? Not only do I not disturb you, I don't have to turn a gate on the other side. So if I arrive there early and you wanna finish your phone call, who cares? You know, you can stay in this place for 30 minutes. I, you know, that's fine, it's parked. Um, which is one of the things we do, right? Like uh, we get in very early, like 5 a.m. sometimes, but no one, we don't wake anyone up until 7.30 because that's checkout time. We don't have this like weird red eye problem. Like we can make any distance last 10 hours, right? We'll just park. And so going back to this opportunity cost uh, uh, question, we looked at um, the verticals that we're really interested in is sleep, obviously, um, work, productivity, um, and, uh, and wellness, right? And the way we look at that is, uh, our view is that you need to, for, for, for you to have very high frequency, long distance travel, you have to be doing something productive during your time, right? And so the way we look at distances is like, what do you do in that transportation time? So if you're going to Sacramento, you're probably gonna work, right? It's like two hours, you're gonna, you wanna get in an office, take some conference calls, and that's great because you arrive there and you didn't lose any of your day. If you're gonna go to Los Angeles, overnight is easy because it's just, you're gonna sleep anyway, right? So, so you can imagine a future there. where you have different <clears throat> vehicles with rooms in them, cabins per 100%. se, with different kinds of cabins based Absolutely. on the distance. Absolutely, we, we view ourselves as um, the platform we wanna create is really a highway train system, right? So. 20 that's, years, yeah. So that's a great seg. I want to come back to the, the train question, yeah. which I'm sure a lot of uh, Americans and even non-Americans who've been to the United States are wondering about. But yeah, 20 years in the future, yeah. highway train system. Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, the way you can think about it is you, these vehicles don't look like buses, they're containers. They're basically the largest thing you can build that you can move, right? Right now it's like 45 feet by eight feet by 12 feet, right? That is the monolith that you can build. And for us, the reason why we use a bus is just the biggest thing you can build, number one. And the economics work to divide those 400 miles by one driver. So right now, the Ubers and Lyfts in the world are not really experimenting with inner city because if you have one driver and even three passengers in a car, it's too expensive. It's gonna be hundreds of dollars, right, to go down to LA, and then they have to deadhead back. With a larger format vehicle, you can actually make the economics work, right? But our view is, think about it as independent modular containers that will pick you up at your house and take you to your destination. So today, the form factor we have, which is very inspired by a Japanese pod hotel, right? They are, there are 22 cabins in each vehicle. There's an upper cabin, a lower cabin. 
that form factor today is much more luxurious than traveling in an airplane, obviously. You have more room than you do in a first-class flight. Uh, but in the world of tomorrow, 20 years from now, that really is going to be the coach class, right? And if you're a family of five, you are going to order a cabin container to your house. It's going to be like checking into the Four Seasons, right? And then you're going to have a living room, you're going to have bedrooms, you're going to have a bathroom, you're going to have whatever. Um, it's like checking into a hotel, but you're going to wake up wherever you want to be, right? And so I think what's really important to understand is number one, it's really not about buses and it's really not about sleep. It's about thinking uh, about moving spaces as real estate and what people are going to do during that time. And what that unlocks, what that, like, if you switch your mind and you start looking at the infrastructure in that way, that unlocks the fact that you don't have travel time anymore. You just have whatever you're going to do anyway on the other side, either in the evening or in the morning. You're just going to do that while you're in transport. The other piece of this, in terms of a business model perspective, is that when you start thinking about uh, this, this future that a lot of the micromobility, especially micromobility you're really seeing is for short distances where you're in transfer for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, it makes sense that you could just sit on top of a wheel and it's fine, right? Because five minutes, 10 minutes doesn't really affect, affect you that much. If you got your phone, you can... You're fine. You, you know, you get on your phone, you waste your time, right? Once you cross the 40 minute mark on a weekday, that's, that's, produ that's productivity. That's take another call, work out, do something that you actually want to be doing. Well, I've noticed, uh, so I, I have to do transcons pretty regularly. I will prioritize airlines that have good, reliable in-flight Wi-Fi, even if that costs a little bit more, and it sends me out of my way. So, like, if I'm on JetBlue, great high-speed Wi-Fi, it's free, full flight. I get a lot more work done than if I'm on the traditional GoGo in-flight Wi-Fi. A hundred percent. Because of the value of my time. A hundred percent. I remember, uh, like, jump, like piggybacking on that. I remember that I was, um, I was going to an investor meeting in New York, right? Um, and it was a super busy week. And so that five hours to me was like when I was going to update my forecast model and and work with my team to like update the deck, right? I got on that plane, and the Wi-Fi was down. Yeah. And they didn't have the power. And they, they didn't have the power outlets. Yeah. And I, I was like rage. I had rage. I was yeah. like, you basically. Like you, you, like you destroyed my, my day, right? Well, this raises an interesting conversation that I've had with a, a number of people, both in uh, the aeronautics industry and at our office with, with Michael and Danielle, which is how important really is supersonic flight, right? Because supersonic flight is one of these questions that people come back to time yeah. and time again as an example of we've regressed technologically. Yes. And I think that there is a long-term case for supersonic, but to the upper middle class professional who's flying what's probably more important is just good reliable in-flight wi-fi yeah i have a lot of thoughts about aeronautics um when i look at when i look at flights and i love traveling i grew up as as, as we talked before like i'm brazilian originally so I, I grew up on an airplane um uh the from a consumer perspective and, and this is one filter that i always try to have a lens lens through is um, Silicon Valley is, is very obsessed on the how, right, on the technology itself, where my mother, which I use as my consumer, she does not care, yeah. right? So if you um, give my mother a supersonic flight, right, from San Francisco to New York, right, and it cuts it down by like two hours, her complaint is going to be about TSA, Yeah. right? 
because the user experience is just that they that supersonic controls is in the air where like flight experience is the airport right right and so my view is fix the airport <laughs> that's like if i was going to invest any technology it was like invest in the security process where someone can check in to a flight at their house send them a car that has an x-ray machine in the trunk have them do pre-check in the car <laughs> right and drive that car to the runway and and just basically get in the plane like a pre-check premium like literally yeah. just just drive to the plane and get them in the plane if you did that you transform aviation right because the the bottleneck infrastructure really is the pain point that if you don't fix that no matter how nice the plane is it it just doesn't fix the inherent problem but you talk to people who've flown on chartered flights they'll tell you that the thing they rant and rave about isn't how comfortable the flight is it's i got to go right up to the plane and just get in I, I came to the airport, yes. I, I got a cup of coffee, and I just got in the plane. 100%. It's not the fact that they're on like this $20 million private jet that's yeah. for them and like four other people. It's that they got to go right up They to arrived the five minutes before their flight took off. And by the way, the flight was taking off when they arrived. So yeah. it didn't matter. It would have waited. For it would have waited. Exactly, right? And so I think, <clears throat> I think in terms of like um, the big macro question, and this also comes back to why we started Cabin, why we chose Inner City as the thing that I was going to spend my time on. I think you as a kill founder, the regional airlines. What? Do you want to kill the regional airlines? Is that really um, I don't want to kill the regional airlines because I don't like planes. I love planes. Uh, I want to travel more often regionally. And planes are not the right solution, hmm. which is different. No, that's a good reframe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and, and by the way, when, and whenever I talk to anyone in aviation, I think they'd be happy, right? Because you have to understand from their perspective, the regional city to city air travel, you said it, it gets bumped right? It gets bump, bumped to, to the lowest. So oh, you're gonna, pilots, pilots don't like being no, uh, regional air pilots. They don't. They're in the lowest part of the pecking order. They are. And uh, if you have a plane coming in from Shanghai, that's landing first. If you have a plane taking off to London, that's taking off first. So the, it, you have like systemic delay issues with regional, right? That's why I, I love when I hear from our customers that, after, that, that have taken cabin and then they're LAX and then they're like, my flight has been delayed three times. It's going to take me nine hours to get to San Francisco. I wish I was on cabin. That's when I'm like, you get it, right? I mean, it's just structural. That's number one. Um, <clears throat> the second thing is that a lot of the depreciation expense on aircraft is not based on mileage. It's based on pressurization. So if you fly a thousand times to London or you fly a thousand times between SF and LA, the structural issues around pressurizing, depressurizing are the same, right? Um, and lastly, from an environmental perspective, taking off is really bad. Right, and so if you're taking off to go a very short distance, distance, it's not good for the environment. One of the reasons we also thought about ground, large format ground, and something that we wanted to invest in is that it's the cleanest, right? It is the lowest carbon footprint way to travel point A to point B, right? From a manufacturing perspective, as well as from an operating perspective. So when it comes to regional air, uh, and, and this is a really good, bringing it back to, to supersonic, cabin started as the demand side problem. Right. Tom and I wanted to just travel more often. Number one, I was seeing what was happened to urban centers and my, my friends that were having kids and, and, and thinking about like, oh, what is this public school education system? Do I really want to live in the city? Can I afford a house? And there is an opportunity with all of these changes to mobility to really th rethink what it's like to, to, to live uh, town and country, right? Where I don't think it's going to be an or decision like our family had to do, where you either live in the city or you live in a suburbs, which no one wants to do, or you live in the middle of nowhere, right? I think the future of work, transportation, 
um, just how like like how distributed work is right now is that our generation is going to be an and generation, not an or generation. Yep. So I don't view myself as living in the city or the country. I don't live both. Like, you know, I just want to just, I want all, I want all the, my options. Right. <laughs> and so when we started thinking about that, I, I, so that was one thing, just work life, just work life and how that has changed. Um, and to, to give you, give you a, a real world example of this, I was talking to my, my, my father um, a couple of weeks ago about, how um, I'm just working, you know, like just, I work all the time, right? And he's, he's like, I didn't have email, right? So I had memos on my desk on Monday, but I actually could turn off for, for you guys when I was in the weekend. And I started thinking about this. I'm like, you know, when I see my dad and he was, he was a, he's a very diligent, um, d- diligent professional. Um, I think I put more hours than I, I did than, than he did for sure. But on the flip side, I definitely take more vacation, right? I travel way more often. I'm like taking a Friday off. I'm working from LA. I'm working from here. I work from home. And what I realize is that I work more and I have more time off simultaneously because work and play are inter are, are interlinked, right? So I'm on vacation. I'm taking an investor call, right? Um, on a Saturday, I'll re- respond to my team. So it's, it's just like an and. I work with my friends, right? Like my, some of my best friends are investors. In the company. You know, so there's this like kind of meld of work life that has just happens where you're always working, you're always playing like all the time, right? So that's one thing that we saw that I was like, I, I, I think that there is this, there's going to be this distribution of your time where you're not going to be in the city or the country on vacation. It's just going to kind of start melding together. Yeah, we have distributed work. You'll have distributed life. Exactly. And, and it also makes uh, sense financially, right? Like you should probably buy, a, buy your house and have your kids go to school in a second tier city where it's sustainable, but you also kind of want the mothership in terms of salary and, uh, and access to talent that you get in a metropolis, which we were talking about before. Yeah. So that's kind of one thing. The second thing is the, about the experience economy, right? And people spending money on experiences versus things. It's been written ad nauseum about, but I think that's a real thing. And so uh, I was talking to someone this week, actually, that was telling me about the... Um, how correlated Instagram and national park visits has been, yeah. where the rise of Instagram is the rise of national park. Oh, look visits. at LA. Half of LA is just is just a, an Instagram. It's, like, just, set. it's just Instagram. Yeah. I, I walk into every coffee shop in LA, and I'm like, I swear this coffee shop actually employs somebody just to make it so that I will take this picture, which I'm taking right now. Put it on Instagram yeah. and tag the coffee shop. Yeah, it's it, it's it's like they live in Instagram. They're yeah. inside of it. Yeah, um, yeah, and and like, I I like using the term Instagrammable consumption, right? Where in the '90s when I was coming of age, uh, the Louis Vuitton bag was kind of how you showed off your wealth, or you know, a, a, a Rolex. And now it's your trip to Thailand. Yeah, but it's, it serves the same function, right? Which is making people jealous. Well, <laughs> right? This is this is Tim Ferriss's idea of the the new rich versus the old rich. Exactly. Right. right. You don't even need to make as much money in order to have the time that the old rich needed to have. A hundred percent. And so uh, when you start thinking about those two things, you realize, and I'm, I'm going to kind of bring it back to the supersonic flight, um, you realize that if you want, which my view is that there is an untapped market for uh, high-frequency regional travel that transportation is holding back. Yep. And if you made it inexpensive and timeless, just bounce around. People travel 10 times as often. Like every weekend they'd be traveling. I'd be, I'd be in New York Monday to Thursday every week. Just come home. Yeah, exactly. Or you could literally pop to New York from Pittsburgh. You wake up in Manhattan, you have your meetings, you fall asleep and you're back in Pittsburgh, right? Like if you unlock frictionless inner city travel, I think there would be an explosion of 
people changing where they live, where they spend their I, time. I think it would fundamentally change the dynamic of a lot of these second-tier cities, too. 100%. Because a lot of these cities have the difficulty of they lose young professionals to the first-tier cities, even though the first-tier cities aren't all that far away. No. Because they just have to It's move. friction. Yeah. Right? Any friction makes make, make, makes it hard. And so... Um, so when when you're when you're and and look everything is showing this the road trip is increasing domestic travel is increasing and the reason why why is not that people don't like uh, going to Europe or Asia or they can't afford it it's because I can take twenty trips regionally a year because I just have to leave work early on a Friday or not even wake up early on a Saturday I'm not going to go to Paris twenty times a year because right. what, like that's not going to happen right and so. My view is that the growth engine of the experience economy and the change in where people work and live is going to be regional transportation. That is the, the massive opportunity today when it comes to mobility, real estate, and the future of work is regional. It is inner city living. It is regional living. It is starting to think about your zip code in a 500-mile radius. I think that, in my view, that's the future. People are just going to, to live in a state instead of a city right? Because of the high frequenciness that they can do it. And not only that, I think that vision of the future is not only enabled by technology, which I think it is from a cost structure perspective, but it's also where the generation, like how the generation views themselves, right? Like we do not view ourselves as staying in one city for forever, right? And we do not view ourselves as having one hobby, right? Like I want a, a world where someone in Phoenix can be a surfer because they're literally in San Diego every weekend, yep. right? Or like for me personally, like I actually like Disneyland. I want to live in the Bay Area, but have a Disneyland annual pass because, you know, three times a year, I tell my son, he's like, hey, do you want to go to Disneyland today? Great. Spend a Saturday, watch the fireworks, come back and he's here, right? Which is an example I use a lot because it really crystallizes this idea of imagine if you could bounce 500 miles for 24 hours, Right that transforms not only leisure, but also work and also education and, and, and all of these things. So going back to the, to the supersonic jet, I'm like, that's great. That's, gonna, that, 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 that's nice because um, it'll be quicker to go to LA, but, or sorry, go from, from San Francisco to New York. But at the end of the day, what I really want to transform my life is not going from San Francisco to New York. It's really going from San Francisco to the mountains or the beach or the desert every week, right? And I don't, see, I, don't, I don't see supersonic flight changing my weekly behavior or my daily behavior. Yeah. And I think that is moving inner city travel to a weekly behavior from an annual behavior, that change is massive. So Gaetano, how did you end up sitting down with Tom and deciding that this is how you wanted to spend your time? Same year that you had a child, too, you were saying earlier. Yeah, well, those two things weren't correlated, but yeah. <laughs> um, also, uh, for future people who are thinking of starting a company and having a kid in the same year, don't. Uh, that was a very intense process. Uh, I don't know if my wife is ever going to forgive me, <laughs> but uh, that was, that was uh, two, two of the most important adventures you can embark on at the same time was, uh, was harrowing. The only silver lining is that the startup that, uh, that I started had a lot of sleep-related user testing that I had to do, <laughs> right? So you could go to work. So I was like, oh, I, I, have, to, I have to dog food our own product which means just sleeping. <laughs> so that worked out well for me. Um, uh, so how did Tom and I meet? So again, Cabin didn't start as a transportation company at all. Um, I did, I did take about 10 minutes to get you to even really admit that it was a transportation company. Uh, 
correct, right? It's it's basically a uh, a uh, opening up a, a where you can live company, right? In in terms of like the first even page on on any presentation I do is is basically saying that Cabin wants to change where people spend their time by enabling effortless long distance mobility, right? So the why is very strictly we want to change where people live and how they how they view their life. And by the way, I think that's 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 worth spending your time on because time is the only thing that matters and where you spend your time has a massive impact on how you experience life, which is the type of stuff that uh that really really actually matters even even if you obviously the unit economics need to work and the and the technology side needs to work but at the end of the day what are you what are you how are you impacting the world and our view is like we want to impact where people live so that actually is where cabin started so i was thinking a lot about i was looking at hyperloop evtol all these forms of transportation and the thing that excited the, the thing that excites me a lot about transportation is real estate I think those two things are basically inexplicably linked, right? And so the way that even, even I am a child of the 20th century in that uh, my upbringing, my life could have never happened before the airplane, right? Like I, I only exist because of the airplane, right? I'm Brazilian originally. My dad got a job in the U.S. I moved here. I lived in Venezuela. I lived in uh, Spain. I, like I live because of the airplane, right? And so transportation and real estate are inextricably linked. And so when, I, when we were looking at all of these forms of transportation, um, the thing that I got really excited about is, oh my goodness, you could build a city right now in the middle of nowhere that is not commutable, that will become commutable, right? So what I was seeing is this idea of, of transportation and the evolution of cities, right? And so there's this really interesting um, study, I don't, I don't know where I saw it, where it was, it was um, looking at city, the, the, the diameter oh, of the yeah, city. Yeah, yeah by form of transportation. Yep. So and like Boston is a very uh, dense, small city, or at least yeah. started out very dense, very small, because you had horses primarily. 100%. And then you look at a place like Chicago, which is a little bit larger because you have trains. Yep. You start to get automobiles yeah. eventually. And then you look at LA, yep. which is just massive because right. you had widespread automobile use. 100%. Or and South uh, Florida, like yeah. all just sprawl. Exactly. And um, I think the, the, the thesis is that um, the size of cities have not changed. Um, they're always one hour and like from one point to the no- from from end to end. That's actually what the size is. Is basically how long does it take a human to transverse the city in whatever form of transportation they have, right? So if it's walking, it's X miles. If it's with an automobile, it's Y, right? And so when you see the evolution of cities, um, and even in Europe, right? In Europe, if you go um, outside of Rome, Florence, uh, Paris, etc., what you have is a metropolis which was the seat of the, the feudal power. But the cities around them were walkable, right? They had a city center, they were concentrated, you have farmland around them. And sure, if you wanna take your artisan goods to market, you'd have to go to this big city, but it was a short um, horse ride, but they were these villages that were self-sustaining. This was, uh, the, uh, this, with the train, it was the same way. But then with the car, you kind of get this disassociated view where you kill the villages and the cities become bigger because now it's like, I'm just gonna live on the outskirt of the city and I can, I can transverse it, right? And also a lot of uh, moving from agrarian to industrial also helped that a lot. Um, and so when you get the car, what you get is this mass exodus outside of the city centers to the suburbs, right? Which is what happened in the 50s, et cetera. Um, and then the inner cities became these places riled with uh, crime and poverty, et cetera. 
Um, and right, then the, the demographic shift in the, the demographic late shift exactly, century. and then you have a generation that grew up in the suburbs and were like, "This is soulless. I want to go back to the city." <laughs> right. right, and then you get gentrification. Right, so you know it's that is the cycle, right? But how did you <clears throat> specifically end up here? Sure. Well, I'm going to get to that. Okay. So as someone who lived in the city, I got very excited about like, oh my goodness, um, you could build this kind of suburbs 2.0, which would be more like a village where it's walkable, it has a coffee shop, it has a viable public school system. Um, my child can have a life that's uh, not uh, the um, suburban sprawl life, but also not that kind of urban, like you see some stuff when you're walking down the street life. It's sustainable, right? It's like, it's kind of this amazing view of a tight-knit, um, high-density community, but not in an urban center. So you have access to nature and um, you have a sustainable uh, like tax base to, to give uh, civic services, right? And so uh, what I wanted to do is build a city, <laughs> literally. So um, I, was, I was investigating, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to see what's commutable today, right? And then I'm going to buy land a little bit further out than that. And that is going to be commutable tomorrow. So it's a real estate arbitrage play based on mobility. And what I was thinking is, okay, look, if you're going to start a city, what's your anchor point, right? Because anytime you look at a city like uh, Brasilia, for instance, in Brazil, if you try to plan a city, it kind of has solace, right? If yep. you try to plan everything. So my view is like, no, make it organic where people like build their own coffee shops and it kind of evolves and it's, 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 it's community generated, right? But you still need that one anchor point, right? And my anchor point was a school system, right? I think that parents are irrational when it comes to their kids, right? And not only that, from a consumer product, it is so sticky. Like you get your kid in a good public school system at six, they have you till 18, right? Yeah. It is a 12 no, year. I, I, mean, I mean, my, my sister and my brother-in-law just built a house in a, uh, that's an hour away from work for them. And they were previously a 15 minute walk away. They don't even have kids yet, but it's in a good school district. That's so it's it worth is. it for them to spend all that time, energy, and money just because of the school district. Absolutely. Um, and so the, the anchor point was this, this and, and I think you, you stole my thunder a little bit because I was seeing <laughs> you buy a bunch of land, you make a really good public school district, the land increases in value, right? People move there, housing prices go up, property taxes go up, the school system gets more money. And then you create, like, there are these places with a strong public school system. You can create a university there, keep people and there. It, and it creates this huge yeah. uh, um, flywheel, right? Like, the difference in real estate uh, prices uh, in a block sometimes is 20 30% just because of that public school system. So that was my view on, on what the anchor is. Tom, my co-founder, doesn't have kids and is not married. His anchor was uh, weekend leisure destinations. So think about a burning man that happens on a week, week, weekly basis, right? Where it's just like, I work hard and then on the weekends I go somewhere where I can like live this kind of high intensity experiential life in nature. Um, and that's kind of the anchor that you, leisure is the anchor and then certain uh, people start moving there and they kind of live there and then it transforms into a, uh, inter into a city. So we both wanted to build cities. We both had different anchors that we thought would be the way to kind of build this. But in both cases, it was about buying land that is not on the grid and using either Hyperloop or eVTOL or autonomous uh, electric vehicles to put them on the grid because transportation is going to change. A mutual friend heard the pitch from both of us and was like, you guys need to talk because you basically have a very similar thesis. 
So Tom and I started talking and that's what we were thinking about doing. We were, lo- we were deep in looking into zoning in different places and trying to figure out how we can create a um, investment vehicle to just buy land. So before you were running around and telling your friends that you wanted to build a city, what were yeah. you doing before that? Um, I was the CEO of a software company. And uh, my background, um, I, so I went to, I went to, to Penn, as, as I mentioned before. I started my career as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. It's very, and then, very typical Penn grad. Yeah, I mean, I think there's basically like a corridor from Wharton to, to, to Goldman Sachs, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's throughput, right? So uh, it, I wasn't very creative, you know what I mean? I just moved 99 miles north with all my friends, basically. Um, uh, had what a, the quarter-life crisis where I was like, oh man, I, I made a huge mistake. I don't want to be a banker, um, even though I had a great experience. And, um, started, and I started working in entertainment. So um, in my 20s, I was actually a producer. I did a lot of uh, did music videos, commercials, etc. I was lucky enough that uh, my company did, did pretty well. But it's, it's actually not random. My experience in the entertainment world when content started being viewed online and then smartphones and then streaming um, has massively informed how I think about Cabin because I don't think about it as much as like what hardware do I need to build. I think about it as you need to start thinking about destinations as content because that's what people are thinking about destinations. They want to consume it. Like Instagram is about destination consumption and it's about high frequency destination consumption, right? So whatever form of transportation you, f- you come up with needs to be about destination consumption. And so that is what has, like a large part of that has led to our product roadmap around decreasing friction and uh, onboarding content, right? So one of the reasons why we want to use ground instead of Hyperloop or uh, aircraft is because you can add and delete destinations very easily, right? It's like, oh, you know, we send all of our people to Santa Barbara, it's raining, sending them to Tahoe. Like, it's just very easy to change your content, right? Your destination content when you have ground transportation. You don't have physical infrastructure. So anyway, that really informed, uh, that period of time entertainment really informed our consumer-facing thesis around uh, transportation and destination consumption. Um, I also saw what was happening in the entertainment industry, and my thesis was I need to go work for Google or Apple or Amazon. (laughs) Because, well, it's just the vertical integration was obvious, right? It's just like, I want to make movies for a technology company because content and hardware and software are all going to be completely intertwined. So I came out to the Bay Area to go to Stanford and with my plan was to stay in entertainment, but to go to a a Netflix or or a Google or an Amazon. And um, a friend of mine raised a lot of money for a um, gaming SaaS business. And I kind of got enthralled in that and started helping with that. And by the end of my time there, um, I had engineering and, and, and product and all that stuff uh, uh, under my, my Oregon transition to, to tech, I guess. But when, uh, when I was there, uh, my passion has, has always really been around how, what does technology do to user behavior? What's the second order derivative, right? That's always what I'm thinking about. It's basically, you invented, a, you invented a, an iPhone, that's great. Um, no one, when the iPhone came out, no one saw Uber and Instagram it was very non-obvious that if you put a camera and a connection to the internet, people would basically change how they consumed everything, right? Um, it was very non-obvious that you kill the taxi cab industry if you have a GPS uh, system and a computer in your pocket, right? So I think my view is when everyone was really talking about mobility and all of these changes, what I was interested in is, okay, what is the second order derivative? And look, Uber, 
And uh, even when I'm in LA, all the scooter companies have has changed my behavior, right? But they fundamentally haven't changed how often I go to the office. They make me bounce around the city 20 to 30% more often for sure, right? Um, the marina feels a lot closer. I can schedule my day a lot more aggressively in terms of bouncing around the city. And, and that's a thing. But when I was looking at mobility costs, the thing that really interested me is like, oh my goodness, you are going to be able to get people to travel out of the city at a significantly higher rate, which means access to a whole host of experiences, right? And so uh, my view is that the town and country or surf and turf is just going to be a lifestyle for everyone um, because that is the major opportunity I see for mobility is, is long distance. It's basically destination consumption. So that's basically kind of a, a long-winded answer to your question on number one, how I got here, right, which is real estate um, and lifestyle and the life that I want to live. And I think a lot of people share this idea of just spending more time in nature and taking up more hobbies and having more experiences with my limited time on earth. And then also why I'm, I'm very passionate about it, I guess. Um, we internally joke around that um, uh, we're in the binge living business instead of the binge watching business, where if you can reduce the friction of just going to a lot more places more often that are very different, um, maybe people will put their screens down and just uh, get addicted to just going, more, going out there. You weren't originally CEO of Cabin, right? Correct. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. About moving into that role? Because one of the things that I, I we're trying to position with this podcast on is some of these hard decisions, right? Sure, absolutely. Um, and yeah. I don't know if it was hard, but these things that are like um, people don't talk about much. It was Tom's idea, so it wasn't it wasn't that difficult. Okay. Um, so basically, when we started the company, there's a, there's a couple of things. The first thing is when we started the company, I was still executive at another company, right? And um, if you're an executive at another company, you have all kinds of responsibilities that are not like here's my two weeks notice. You have your team, you have investors, you have the board, you have your CEO. You have to give people uh, room for that decision. So my process of like, okay, I think the next chapter of my career starting was like a six month process, right? Of succession planning, uh, what, you know, how is the, the business gonna, gonna organize itself? There was a lot of change and transition that was happening. So even though uh, Tom and I came up with the idea for Cabin Together, Tom was really the one that uh, ran the first experiments. He's the one that uh, raised a lot of the, the early uh, seed capital and he started the company several months before I even joined, right? And so the, the first step is that he was a CEO because I wasn't at the company. Even though I had a, we had a plan for me to join at a certain point, I couldn't until um, I left uh, my previous position in a good spot. And so that is an easy answer to it. Um, and when I started, I was the president, right? So CEO and president, it's basically you two are doing all the stuff together yeah, in a certain yeah. way, right? And so... Um, when it comes to our uh, responsibilities and our core competencies, my experience really is around organizations, management. I love that stuff. Like uh, one-on-ones to me are something I look forward to. Like I love hiring. I love career development. I love thinking about teams and scale and, um, and all of those aspects. So from the very uh, beginning, the org really reported to me, right? Just because that's where my experience is. Uh, and so when you looked at how the company worked internally, it really was where you were de facto, I was the, the, the decision maker around, around uh, strategy. And then Tom and I are very much interlinked when it comes to product. So I think on the product side, um, he really takes a lot of the technical stuff 
around all this mobility piece costs. Like all of this thinking that I told you about cost per mile and like what's the rhyme form factor, Tom really is the, the brains around like thinking about this and arriving to the conclusion that large format ground was the right call. That was his, right? He was going back to the idea of how we started cabin that you're, is missing is once we talked, we were like, let's build a city. And then we started really looking at the cost structure of Hyperloop and, and, and then we were like, oh, this is not going to be a thing, right? So it really uh, was like, hmm, can we do like atom by atom transportation, it, teleportation? No. Okay. Let's do Seriously, buses. like we, 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 <laughs> we, we put Pez in buses because we were like, oh, this is maybe the easiest way to move a lot of people a very long distance, yeah. like at high frequency, right? Um, and he was really the, the, the brains around, around thinking about that cost per mile and what is the right form factor and when is autonomous going to happen, when's electric going to happen. And our conclusion really, it was like 10 years. So we were like, we can't buy real estate now because it's too far away. And we also thought no one is thinking about the right form factor for cost. Um, so let's do that instead. And on my side was much more around the hospitality, branding, how do you make this the most incredible user experience um, with the attention to detail that is necessary. Because the other thing that you have to think about is once you consider the transportation piece a commodity, which is what we think it is, right? It's a race to the bottom. Like right, right. moving something. Yeah, that, that was a question that I had yeah. coming through my mind earlier too. How do you prevent this from just being like Uber? A hundred percent. And people and open up the Uber app, then they open up the Lyft app and they just choose whatever's cheaper. Complete commodity, right? So, so uh, going back to the micro mobility piece, um, I have all the scooter apps on like on my phone when I'm in LA and literally I just look for which one's closest. Or, or look how people buy airline tickets. They literally go to Google flights. A hundred percent. They've got two airlines. One has a reputation of being considerably worse than the other, but it's a dollar cheaper. They'll go with it. A hundred percent. And so um, uh, when it comes to that, uh, our thesis when we saw this is margin that we can protect is not going to come from the transportation piece. The getting from point A to point B at the lowest cost possible. Sure, I think we're a little ahead of the curve in like being like, this is the right form factor. Like if you actually kind of break it down, but w that margin is not, you can't protect that margin, right? right? As, soon as, every, uh, as soon as everyone realizes that it's race to the bottom, right? It goes to zero. What you can protect is hotels. You can protect a Four Seasons, you can protect a Ritz-Carlton, you can protect uh, working space in terms of like how nice it is, right? And what your additional um, costs for uh, tenant improvements is, right? Like office spaces are different based on how nice they are. You can also protect a Soul Cycle or an Equinox, right? And so our view is the margin is gonna come from the time. So when we took a look at where we wanted to enter the market, we said, you know what? Instead of going with, the, the sleep bus pilot really was kind of like going for coach, like going for like, oh, let's get it as le the least expensive as possible. When we did an analysis, we were like, you know, right now it's much easier to start super high and go down, you can't start down and go up, yep. right? So we were like, you know what? Let's try to protect the highest margin possible in a nicest moving hotel that you can build today with the economics and try to protect that price point and make the product worth that price point. And then later on, you can always go down the stack, right? But our view is that transportation margin is going to come from time, not from moving costs. Um, and an example I like, which conceptually for long distance is very simple to understand. It's basically like we're making money on your hotel stay, not making money on the airline ticket. Yep. That makes sense. But even in, like, even in a commute, um, an example I like to give is around the, um, I think the promised land for uh, ride sharing in an autonomous 
future is, uh, is a monthly subscription all you can eat pass, right? Like I pay this monthly fee and I can use Lyft as many times as I want anywhere I want within this ring fenced area. That's the promised land, let's say, right? Monthly subscription, all you can eat. Let's say the cost of that monthly uh, subscription is $100 for Lyft, right? That's what it costs them from a vehicle depreciation, tire wear and tear, battery charging, cleaning, that's what it costs them, right? So they, and they have to charge a margin to make money, right? So it's a $100 cost, they charge you $110, which I think is aggressive for a commodity business, right? 10%, yeah. good for them. And let's say Amazon starts looking at what people are doing while they're in transport. And they're like, wow, you know, if I uh, really kind of put a lot of Amazon related things into this experience, people are buying a lot of stuff on their commute. Not only that, I can put their stuff in their trunk right. because I know when they're going to be picked up. So Amazon's going, going to be the real moneymaker there, not Lyft. If Amazon figures out how to make 10 extra profit dollars in that time, uh, they can give you that subscription for $95 because they don't make money on the transportation. The transportation is a cost center. They make money on your time. Anyone that is purely in the transportation business is going to get destroyed, is my view long-term. Because transportation is not the thing. The thing is the other thing, right? So um, you need to figure out how you're going to make money on people's time, right? So I'm much more bullish on uh, Waymo because I think Google makes money on ads, <laughs> right? Um, not on the transportation than I am anyone else because they can, like they, you know, for them, they can offer it at a discount the transportation piece as a cost center. They already make have money the infrastructure set up and right? experience um, with it. And, and, sco and scooters, for instance, I'm like, why wouldn't the city of Santa Monica just do that, right? If it gets to a point that it's so inexpensive and you have it anywhere, that might just be a public good. It might be cheaper than them running a bus around, around the city, right? Or again, if, you, if, if any type of business can figure out how providing a scooter subscription helps them with any other type of product, they will make margin on that. So going back to your uh, original question on how uh, Tom and I divided our, because that's where we started. What I was concentrating on is like, okay, once we got to that point, it's like, how do you build a technology hospitality company, right? The transportation piece we have to do, but what we're really, really focused on is on user experience. So for example, even all of the technology and hardware we've developed is really around how do you feel while you are in transport? We're not gonna figure out battery energy density. We're not going to figure out autonomous. There are billions of dollars going into that. Those We're going to buy that. Be commodities too. Right? And they're going to be commodities, right? Like as soon as the first semi-truck company figures out ramp to ramp, like I'm in, <laughs> you know, I'm good with that. Um, our view is controlling the user experience, right? It's controlling the end to end product that um, it's so good, right? It is so streamlined. It is so connected that when you start thinking about uh, the product, the product disappears. Like my view um, in the future, if you're a cabin user, is you don't think about cabin, you think about Ojai, right? Because cabin has already taken care of everything. You know what it is, it's always high quality, it's always there, I know exactly how to take it. And the cabin app just looks like Netflix. It's just a bunch of things to do. And you just click on it and you're like, great. And then you forget because the entire in-transport experience is so seamless, you don't even think about it. So that, that's a good seg too. 
for I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the technology you guys have developed. Sure. For the so let me experience. just kind of uh, finish the thought on okay. the CEO thing because yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. Um, so uh, once Tom and I worked for a year, um, he said, I think you should be CEO. Um, and I thought about it. We talked to our investors. Uh, they have always operated with both of us. So they're like, that makes sense. You know, like he's working on hardware all the time. You're the one with the team, like doing the operations and the branding and, and giving us updates. And I think the, the check the box that really made sense to us is internally that announcement had zero impact on anything. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I think it's suited to what we like. And once the there's a lot of angst around those decisions because you think about signaling, the relationship between the two founders, et cetera. Um, I am very fortunate to have Tom as a founder. Um, he is one of the best humans. Um, it's a treat. You, anyone who's listening to this should friend Tom on Facebook <laughs> and just read his stream of conscious like, view on the world. I can, I can second this. It's... Uh... I, I, I have it set up on Facebook that almost everyone uh, and people I tell people don't take this personally I, I just unfollow everyone yeah so I don't consume the product yeah but I will I still find myself checking on Tom's posts they're it's incredible they're interesting it's actually incredible <laughs> so um, give yourself a, a treat and start following Tom on on Facebook um, and so uh, I think it was just an, an incredibly natural uh, decision of hey. You're, you're co-founders, right? You started the company together. You had the idea together uh, in terms of an ownership thing. There's nothing weird there. And so just switching roles to what you actually are doing was a pretty normal decision, like a really easy decision. So in answer to your question, for me and Tom, I don't think, or, and our team and our investors, it was like a non-issue. That is not to say it won't be an issue in other situations, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't forced... It wasn't uh, performance-based. It wasn't company-based. It was literally like, this is what you're doing day-to-day. -day. The ownership stuff is not going to change. Our relationship is not going to change. Just, just do what we are doing. Just formalizing more. Just formalize what doing. is actually yeah. happening. Because it's, it's weird that it's the other way, right? Because if you come in and you see what's happening, you're like, why is this the situation? Right, right. If you're just working on hardware and in the Menlo Park lab and everyone's reporting to this person, let's just make it not weird that way. That makes sense. So your your question around technology. Yeah, I do want to I do want to touch on the technology element because this is when I came across this a couple months ago before you guys rolled it out. I was like, that's I can see this more as a tech company, right? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, so the idea of it being a truly seamless experience, right? Yeah. I mean, somebody gets into a motor coach, and they have their own sleeper pod. They get into, uh, you know, when I have told people about Cabin because we we have you know. 50 companies in our portfolio. Yep. And I, I like to tell people about different companies, but sure. Cabin's one that I, I come back to pretty often because I just think it's, I, I love the time arbitrage uh, idea in particular, but I've had numerous people ask me, it's like, well, that sounds great, but what if you hit a pothole? That sounds great in California, right? Where you don't have winners to deal with, but you could get, hit a pothole <coughs> and then you wake up in the middle of the night and yeah, then, yeah the whole thing's ruined. So what, what sure. have you guys developed there? Yeah, so... Let's talk about the te te technology road roadmap. So um, on the technology side, uh, when we think about hardware, because on the on the outside, you're right, right? If you explain cabin, you're like, what? okay, good idea, but, but what is this, right? If you look at what our org structure is, it's there's a lot of engineers, right? So why? why? Yeah, you're a tech um, company. You're not Yeah, it's not exactly. So company. I spend a lot of my time like lo thinking about software and hardware all the time. Um, I think the way that we... Um, 
we position ourselves from an experiential friction point is not that um, a bus is going to work now. Um, it's that the form factor makes sense from a cost per mile perspective. Uh, dog food it today. So you can build a technology roadmap around that, right? So people, people have been investing in automobiles for 100 years, right? They're very sophisticated. And to be honest, buses are very sophisticated too, but not as much on in-cabin experience, right? Um, and automobiles aren't that sophisticated, in my view, in in-cabin experience. They're very sophisticated for a driver, but not for a passenger. Like arguably the only companies that really have invested a lot of R&D on passenger-centric development is like Rolls-Royce and Volvo, you know what I mean? One, because their value prop is safety, and the other one because their value prop is the person is not driving the car, they're in the backseat, right. right? Even though that has changed over time. Um, and so when it comes to our thesis, and this, this is not something that happened post-fact. This is um, when we were pitching seed, Tom was pitching active suspension. Like that was, that was beforehand. And our whole view was, look, once you start, a, once you start selling transportation to passengers and not drivers, uh, all of the things that have been value props don't matter, right? In an electric autonomous future, hopefully there's no car crashes, right? The safest vehicle in the world, I don't know what that means because all vehicles should be really safe or else we're not even gonna get to level five, right? Acceleration, steering, feeling like a man because there's so much torque in your F-150 does not matter in an electric autonomous future. The ultimate driving machine does not matter in, the in an autonomous future. So our view is, you can't really mechanical Turk what kind of in-cabin environment you have to build in a sedan. The reason for that is people aren't in a sedan often enough. It's not big enough to put a bed in, to put an office in, to put a Peloton in, to like test that stuff out. And the driver cost is too expensive to hire a private driver to like take you around for an hour and be like, oh, how does that feel? It doesn't work economically. On large format, it does. And so our kind of whole view is, let's assume that electric autonomous is gonna happen in a 15-year time frame. <laughs> now what? What is, what is the patent portfolio around that? What is the roadmap around that? What is gonna really matter to the passenger experience once you're not driving and you're actually trying to sleep, you're actually trying to work, you're actually trying to work out, and you actually want this to feel like real estate, right? And um, it's, it's real user-based feedback, right? Like during our, our um, um, we just launched our second product, which we call G2, which includes all of the technology we've been developing over the last 18 months. Um, but our G1 service, which really was a, a prototype that we put out there, we took 10,000 people between SF and LA. We have a lot of data, right? And the number, like the, the, I think the most interesting things around that were the number one was bumpiness. I mean, it was just order of magnitude. That is the issue. And that is the issue that you are going to face if you want to treat a car like a room Stability is the only thing that matters, right? Um, and so um, that's where we focus our efforts. Um, the other stuff that really matters is the bathroom really matters. That's a whole other animal. Uh, temperature matters. Like all of these living systems are really going to matter a lot in the future for transportation. But when it comes to the, the bumpiness technology, you just have to make it more stable, right? Um, and that is all of the axes. It's braking, accelerating has issues. Sway has issues, moving lanes have, have issues, curves have issues. And all of those can be helped a lot by how the driver drives. 
the up and down motion is about the, the road, right? And so that one is a much more hardware solution than a software solution. And we do have a software-hardware hybrid uh, product suite. One is called Drive, which is more the software side around geotagging uh, potholes and telling drivers to switch lanes, that kind of stuff, um, and really tracking how they brake and accelerate and how that feels to a human, et cetera, which is a universal thing. Like I was on an Uber the other day and I literally was like, you need to slow down. Like I don't feel safe. Yeah. And so you can imagine that there is a software solution to ping drivers if they are going like crazy, right? Where it's just like, you've switched lanes at this velocity. Like you are accelerating and braking at this velocity. Like you can tell a driver. I mean, I, I used to take a, uh, I coach fairly regularly when I was in Philadelphia yeah. and uh, why I stopped doing it. And I just started taking the train besides the fact that I could afford the train was the drivers were just making me sick. The terrifying. Yeah. It was, it was a terrifying experience. So the, the dri uh, driver, which is a, which is a proto autonomous thing is basically mapping the road and understanding how acceleration affects how you feel and how lane switching affects how you feel and how taking turns affects how you feel, especially in the prone position right? When you're sleeping is very different in terms of how you have spatial awareness. So in general, that's kind of the software side. And the hardware side is just a, uh, a, the active suspension system, which takes the differential between what we found is that there is enough time between a bump hits the tire to a bump hits the bed frame to, uh, for an algorithm to process what to do. So we use that differential to input a counter a counter frequency. So from a technical perspective, it's noise canceling headphones, right? Basically it's listening to the ambient vibration and putting in a counter vibration, right? And so far it's, uh, it's live on G2 on, um, on one quadrant of the vehicle as we kind of test and, and, and make sure all the systems are working so far. It's been working great. We have no failures. Um, and, uh, and, uh, it's, it gets to 90% peak extinction. So on the worst bumps, it's cutting through about 90% of the felt acceleration. Um, now, we were very curious when we launched because, I mean, it solves the problem. But from a user perspective, it is some space age stuff. Like you are going into this cabin with this magnetic panel system and you press a button and this air system like lifts you up to a zero position. And then you're looking at the walls and you are just moving it. Like the vehicle is moving around you and you feel like you're not moving, right? It's a fun experience. <laughs> um, I think the, the most interesting thing that's happened is like, Tom uh, is uh, like logs how when people turn it off and on and what's happening in the system, obviously. And uh, the user behavior so far has been either people leave it, like turn it on and then like they're out or they turn it on and then five minutes later, turn it off. And then they wait about 15 minutes and then they turn it back on and they leave it on. Right. So <laughs> basically it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of interesting. I don't know if I like it. I'm going to turn it off. And then they're like, oh no, this is not, no, I'm turning it back on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's significantly better. So uh, it wor the system works, but going back to at the macro level, I think this is kind of more fundamental when you're thinking about developing experiences is um, I think technology, the beauty of technology is around what it does to human behavior, right? Period. Like technology for technology's sake is not, it's interesting and it's fun, but what, what, what can you do with it, right? And my view is that the most magical uh, new businesses have been able to use technology in these two, two ways, right? Which number one is make it less expensive, right? Any technology that makes something less expensive or less frictionless or, or, or have less friction is amazing, 
right? So automation is in that. A lot of SaaS enterprise software is in that. I would argue Netflix is, is similar in that where just not having to go out to see something, that friction, that cost structure, it makes it cheaper to consume more things and that's great, right? Um, a lot of human progress has been just technology making things less expensive, either from time or from a cost perspective and that's magical. Um, the other side is experiential, right? Technology making things feel better, taste better, look better, etc. The most magic is when you get both, right? And so in our perspective, our selection of large format vehicles and how we're going to add electrification, which is going to be much sooner. I think electrification for us is in the, not like six months, but also not in like five years. It's kind of in hopefully in the next 36 months, we're really going to make some progress on electrification, right? That is going to be great for the environment. It's going to reduce our maintenance uh, overhead. It's going to make the experience better. And, and, and autonomous, obviously, is the one that really affects the cost basis of the ticket price, right? So although we're keeping tabs on that, that technology shift is just a sector shift that we want to piggyback on. But on the quality side, that's where the technology that we're, we're having now works. And what we did, what we have done um, on the technology side would not have been possible five years ago, right? And so the costs that we can create an active suspension system um, would have been prohibitively expensive even five years ago. And now you can do it, right? We use off-the-shelf components, and it's really a, about the algorithms and all the data we've been collecting. That's kind of the secret sauce around the suspension and the in-cabin experience is around data. We log every single thing that happens in every single cabin for every single passenger every single minute of the way, right? So we're just getting really smart around how people feel while they're in motion for long periods of time. The hardware pieces, like how you put it together, is, is challenging, but um, they're off-the-shelf components. We're not manufacturing anything from, from scratch. And so um, your answer in terms of our technology roadmap is we are riding the wave of others on the cost side, and we are developing internally everything around the quality side. And when I think you put those two things together is when you really can kind of transform user behavior. Gaetano, thanks so much. Founders First is a project of 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund is a venture capital fund backing founders at the earliest stages of their careers and companies. If you are a founder, hacker, maker, or scientist working outside of universities, you can reach out to us at 1517fund.com. That's 1517fund.com. We'd love to talk to you.